Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie, and this is the season finale of Future Work Playbook Season 3, where we've talked with exceptional founders, CEOs, and in-house counsel about the explosive growth in Latin America. We featured several great companies and heard stories such as how one founder worked with the Bezos Venture Arm and several celebrity investors, another founder's climb to be the first billion-dollar social impact unicorn, and another company's two-year sprint to onboard over 5 million small businesses. Our final guests of Season 3 are Vitex co-founder Alex Sonsini and Vitex General Counsel Juliana Lopez. Vitex went public on the New York Stock Exchange exactly one year ago. Thank you both for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for the invite, Natalie. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome. And it's such a pleasure to have you. Alex, I'd really like you to start by taking us through your journey and going public. Can you tell us about your company and share your thoughts about preparing for an IPO? Sure, sure. So we'll be happy to to talk about it. Before I talk specifically on what uh, were the motivations for us to to do the IPO, it's important to to highlight that Vitex has uh, 22 years. So even though we are a technology company and probably most of the tech startups, they started maybe five, seven, eight years ago, we are older than most of the tech startups in the market. And it took us a while for us to go public. But I would say specifically about the, the IPO, it was something that we've started planning a couple of years before. So I would say maybe four years before the IPO, we had that as a target, as a, a milestone that we wanted to, to achieve. So on, on one hand, for us, it was an important milestone, mainly to motivate other Latin American tech companies that it was possible. I think specifically talking about our niche, we were the first company, Latin American company, on the, the niche that we, we were to do what we did and our IPO at the NYSE. So we wanted to put the, the Latin America at the center, and that's a goal that we still have. We want to put uh, Latin America at the center of digital services in the same way that we have Germany for cars, France for cosmetics, Italy for fashion, India for call center. Yes. That's a goal that we have, and that's part of the path to get there. Alex, you are LATAM's largest enterprise digital commerce platform at this point, right? That's right. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's an amazing journey. Anything, Alex, that you can tell us about some of those fundraising efforts during that pre-IPO phase? Yes, for sure. I think we have, we have some learnings that we can share. In the whole, I would say not not specifically only like just before the the IPO, 
but in most of our fundraising efforts that we have, I think we've learned a lot dealing with investors and talking with investors mainly on how they look at the company's efficiency through the numbers. So it's, it's amazing to see how the software as a service industry, that's the, the industry that we are, has some very important uh, KPIs that can tell a lot. And we've learned it uh, with the investors on how to look at it as well to help us to evolve the company, to improve internally our processes and also to make sure that we were going to the right path. So the IPO itself is a more complex, I would say, process, but it's at the end of the day, it's also a fundraising effort uh, that brings more transparency and governance to the company than just a, a private one, I would say. Right. Shuliana, what about you? I believe you, know, you obviously had a big part uh, in the IPO, and I believe this was your first IPO. But the legal side, it can be different. What do you want to share about that experience? Oh, yes. It was my first IPO. Actually, it was almost everyone at VTEC's first IPO. So we had this huge project to deliver with little experience in the process and not a lot of time. So when I joined VTEC, and that was uh, almost three years ago, there wasn't a legal department yet. So when we decided to start working towards being a public company, the legal team had been created only a few months before, but the timing was really good. So much of what we had been building to structure the team, the corporate governance, the processes and procedures that we put in place, the historical information that we had been gathering and analyzing, and also the relationships that we created making legal very much connected to the business and the other areas of the company was crucial to the IPO readiness and now the life as a public company. There was definitely a lot of things to learn and to execute at the same time. So um, for eight months, I pretty much lived and breathed the IPO process, <laughs> apart from the day-to-day -day operations, of course. But this was a huge learning experience that I got to put into practice right away from regulation to drafting documents and tackling risks and so much more that involved being an internal counsel on the company that is about to go public. Not only me, I had interns, for example, deep diving on the due diligence process, understanding all the requirements and talking to brokers. And this is a team that is all based in Brazil. So... Besides all the hard work that it involved, it was something really amazing to see and that impacted the careers of the entire team. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for young professionals to have the opportunity to work on something like this from Brazil is just incredible. Everyone was genuinely excited and eager to deliver the best work possible. And when the day finally came, and that's a date that I will never forget in July 21st last year, mm -hmm. it was amazing to see everyone getting, you know, emotional and proud of what we have done. I personally would do it again every year. It's, it's <laughs> Some people would say you're crazy to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but truly the experience of a lifetime and you can you can hear that excitement and passion in your voice and what that meant for not just you but the entire team and you talked about uh, some of your 
interns, I, I have to ask you who, you know, who were very, who were new in their, their careers and just getting this type of a, an opportunity. But given that this was your first IPO, did you have any mentors or people who were guiding you um, that were helpful uh, during this process? Well, yes, of course, it is extremely important to have advisors to back you up. So for us, and specifically here in the legal team, external counsel that understands the team and the company is very important. As I mentioned before, I had little experience with the IPO process in the U.S., and suddenly this massive amount of knowledge to, to obtain. So external legal counsel was a key party to, to guide us through that. So, well, external counsel comes with robust experience and knowledge on, on the SEC and local rules on the case of a FBI like Vitex. And internal counsel comes with the deep knowledge of the company. And of course, we had underwriters counsel that was also working for the same goal of reaching a successful transaction. So, you know, ultimately it's a teamwork. We learn from each other to have the best outcome. But the entire process is very complex and time consuming. So um, you spend a lot of time dealing with different stakeholders, auditors, lawyers, brokers, financial advisors that are part of the journey. And... I think that each of these interactions adds something to the table that will somehow help throughout the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I saw a a photo when you did go public and the team and it was, it's probably, you know, those photos are always so much fun to take a look at, but wow. I, I just, I loved it. You could, you could feel the, you know, it looked like, such a great celebration. And I love the, the matching pink. Can you tell me, is that what Alex, maybe I'll turn back to you. How, how did you decide to all wear pink last year? <laughs> so I think it's, it's a fun story. I think we could be talking about it for a while, but basically as a tech company, uh, when we started in 2000, our first like brand, our first logo was kind of blue and, and orange, yeah. basically uh, similar to a lot of other tech companies that were usually using not like, I would say, bright colors. And I remember when I when I moved to the U.S. to open our office in the U.S., it was at the beginning of 2016, we started to do some trade shows. And the blue and orange was like pretty similar to any other company. It, it was not a way to to kind of highlight our company in, in a trade show. Yeah. So I would say I decided by myself, yet when we were a small startup, I would say that we could do some crazy things uh, without a lot of, I would say, bureaucracies, et cetera. So I've just changed the, the logo color to pink and did the whole booth in the trade show all pink. I remember the the marketing team like were like really angry with me because... Uh, I didn't eventually added them to the to the to the decision process <laughs> right. and just did that. But at the end of the day, everyone looked at the, the booth and said, "Oh, it's amazing! I think it's really oh, something yeah. that will highlight the company in the in the in the market, etc." And we were in the process of uh, uh, re uh, doing our brand, and so at that moment we decided to to have our new branding pink because 
of this experiment that we've started in the US. And after that, I think we, we call it our rebel pink. <laughs> uh, and we, in most of our main events, like the IPO, we try to honor the color of the company and we were all using our pink shirt during the, the, the IPO. So it was a great way to. It absolutely works. I just, it, I think it is my very favorite uh, photo of, a, of an IPO um, of, of being, at the, being at the stock exchange. Amazing. Um, so Alex, let me, let me stick with you for a moment and I want to fast forward a little bit. So now that you're a public company, you know, we're, we're at the a one year anniversary of that happening. What are some of the things that have changed in your day to day? So I would say that on one hand, being more pragmatic, not a lot has changed because as I said, we, we have been preparing for the, the IPO probably like we've started four years before the, the IPO. Even though you cannot like like define a date for the IPO, my IPO is going to be four years from now. I, I remember that. I think Juliana can also talk about it. I remember that maybe a couple of weeks before the IPO, uh, we still didn't have certainty that the IPO was going to happen on the on July 21st. A lot of moving parts are moving together and and they need to, to connect at the same time, at the same moment. And, and so it's, it's usually unpredictable. But uh, I think because we've prepared uh, so much for that day, we didn't uh, notice a lot of uh, changes in the company. However, I think some learns that we had uh, when preparing to the IPO and, and mainly in, in most of our fundraising efforts is that one of the challenges is that you need to continue to grow the company while you keep the investors' conversation going on. Yeah. So usually when, when you give space to talk with investors and, and they like the conversation, they want to, to listen to more and more and more. They want to look at your numbers. They, want to, they, they are very diligent before uh, their investments. And so when you are talking about 10, 12, 15 different private equities, VCs, et cetera, it's not easy to make sure that you do not lose the focus on keeping the growth of the company uh, while you are talking with them. So, so you, you need to make sure that uh, you have both plates like going on there and, and you do not, uh, I, I've seen some companies kind of losing the focus, uh, focusing so much on trying to sell their companies to the investors mm-hmm. and not continuing to grow as they could just because they were putting more effort on the, the investors' conversation. So that's one of the, the lessons that we, we've had. And we, again, we try to be very diligent because still today, and, and, and I, even more today, I think one thing that changes is that we have more conversations with investors on a daily basis. We need to have a team ready to do that, to make sure that they keep the investors up to date in what they need to know and what they can know. On the other hand, that we also continue to run the strategy of the company and make sure that we keep growing it. Well, that you are doing, I can imagine that at the eighth annual VTEX day that you that was just, just a couple months ago, right? Right. Yeah, so 14,000 
of yeah. people, two days, sellout events, uh, and and the first you know gathering since going public. That must have been an amazing feeling. Yes, I think it was a a great celebration for us. Again, the date was kind of scheduled. It's been like two years, so we didn't pick that date a couple months before the event. It was already there. And yeah. by chance, uh, I think it was one of the, the first events in Latin America post-COVID. Yes. Uh, so we had a lot of people also celebrating uh, in-person events, again, that were back besides uh, all that we have been doing to put the Latin American market in the spot, talking about digital services and technology. So yes, it was, it, was, it was great to see a lot of people there. We have a lot of international attendees coming to the event, not only from Latin America, but we had people from Europe, from Asia, from the US also attending the event. So it's great to see that we, we have been able to create and, and maintain a event that is referenced in the digital commerce industry in the world. Yeah. And, and I have to say, on top of that, some very cool keynote speakers. Um, I saw, including seven-time Formula One champion, Sir Lewis Hamilton. That's very cool as well. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, amazing. It was, the uh, Lewis, I think, was, was great. I was with him before he entered the stage. And he was kind of nervous because he said, I think I've never talked to a, a, a big crowd like that. Well, yeah, so, that's a huge crowd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he said, I'm, 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 I'm here like super anxious to go to the stage because it's going to be probably the first time that I talk to over 10,000 people. Yeah. And, you know, in Brazil, we have a, a good connection with Formula One. And, and yeah. it was great to see him there. Like people were super excited to see him. He's a... Uh, 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 he's he's super admired in, in Brazil, so it was a a great event for us. Of course, yeah, no, all over all over the world. Okay, Juliana, I'm going to turn back to you. Um, uh, and listen, you've accomplished so much in your legal career, and I I want to I want to talk about uh, something that you've recently. Uh, added to all the things that you do. And, and it's this new role in the legal department of adding data privacy into your title. Can you tell me what did you learn uh, from going public uh, that you were able to take into your new role overseeing data privacy for Vitex? Yeah, of course. Uh, data privacy is a hot topic. And as a global company, VSAS is subject to multiple data privacy legislations, especially um, LGPD and GDPR. So even before going public, this was a concern for VSAX. And therefore, to be privacy compliant started not now, but years ago. Uh, but of course, that being a public company raises the bar and the level of scrutiny that, that the company suffers. So... That's the reason for the addition to the role. That there was even more investment towards privacy, which resulted in the legal department having an arm focus on governance and privacy awareness. Great. Great. And let me let me ask uh, for both of you, 
What was the biggest takeaway or maybe what has, well, what's, I guess, what's been the biggest takeaway after the IPO? Well, for me, it's the level of maturity that we reached during the IPO readiness process. And now as a public company, Vitex has a strong and steady culture. And as Sonsini mentioned, did not change with the IPO. And this is very important for the identity of the company. So for me, it's really interesting to see that a company can become mature and have processes, policies, and procedures in place that, of course, are impossible to avoid, especially when it becomes public, without having to lose, how can I say, um, its essence. And talking more specifically about mm -hmm. the legal departments, there is this no whole new scope of security laws and SEC regulations added from the day one. So um, you bring the corporate governance to another level after the IPO. You think about it in every single decision and every single task that legal is involved. So for me, it's these two, two things. Yeah, great. How about you, Alex? So I'll, I'll go more to the to the business side of the, the organization, but I think looking at the strategy, again, the, the financial view of the company is super important, but cannot be the only criteria to drive our decisions. So there are many other very important factors that we need to consider in that equation uh, when we are mainly taking our long-term decisions. So what's the impact of this investment? How is it going to, to, to improve our reputation? Because at the end of the day, it's everything about reputation. So yes. we as a company, we are very specialized in e-commerce, in digital commerce. We want to be uh, like we are in Brazil. If someone thinks about e-commerce, they think about Vitex. And yes. why we have that in Brazil? Because we were able to build a strong reputation as specialists in e-commerce. And that's what we have been, that's the playbook that we have been repeating in our global expansion yes. start, that we started uh, by opening offices in LATAM. Then, then we opened US, Canada, Europe, yeah. a bunch of, of, of countries in Europe. So uh, how we can build that reputation as, I would say, as fast as we can, replicating the playbook of what we are learning in other regions and also adapting to the culture each country has a different culture, has different challenges talking about the technology as well. So this is part of our decision process. Again, the financial view of the company is super important, but cannot be the only or the main aspect for us to take our decisions. We need to make sure that we also look at other factors, mainly focusing on how can we build our reputation through our global expansion and continue to, to thrive in the, the new regions that we are starting or that we have started uh, recently to replicate the same that we've done in Brazil, that we are doing in LATAM to uh, other places. Well, you're, you're certainly succeeding in maintaining your stellar reputation and with the global expansion. And I, have, I just want to say I've so enjoyed this conversation with both of you, and sadly, we're nearing the end. I would love for both of you, if you could, 
just share a piece of advice or tips that you think would be helpful for our audience. It's, you know, we've got leaders and, and founders. Um, and Juliana, let me start um, with you my this time, tip please. For lawyers, would be to be curious. It's impossible to know everything. And because of that, you should not be intimidated by things you don't know. So when you get the challenge, you will figure it out. Mm -hmm. This is going to sound very cliche, but I can help it because it's true. And that's that the best opportunities and the best learnings are out of your comfort zone. So don't be afraid to hit the ground running. Yep. That's a great tip. And I think everybody needs to, we, our world is changing so quickly and you have to stay hungry and curious, as you said, and really embrace this concept of of lifetime learning and getting out of your comfort zone. So I, I love that tip. Alex, Any anything you can share? Yeah, I think on one hand, a big part of what's making Vitex grow and, and achieve those milestones that we have been able to achieve is because of our culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean on the culture is, is the, a culture of ownership and accountability. So, so I think building a culture of ownership and accountability is key to the, to the success of the company. It's not easy at all. It's very difficult because uh, we usually tend to try to micromanage that we want people to do things the way that we were going to do it and not exactly like give them problems and, and have them finding solutions, but we eventually give them tasks and it's much harder to give them problems and let them find the solution because we tend to have the solution in our mind and we want to just ask people to execute. So again, there is, there is a lot behind building a culture of ownership and accountability. It demands a lot of hard decisions. Sometimes it takes time, but the results are amazing. So this is uh, one thing that I, that I always like to highlight. And part of this culture of ownership and accountability is related to fail. So uh, we, inside the company, we promote people to fail in some ways. So uh, failing is the best way to learn and to evolve. I know that it's, it's painful, but uh, it's like when you have kids and you tell your kid, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. They are not going to listen to you until they get hurt and then they, they will learn, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so, so everyone that has a son or a daughter is going to understand what I'm talking about. I think in, in the professional life, we, we have the same. So we really, again, promote an environment inside the company for people not to be afraid of failing. It's part of our culture. Uh, the important thing is to fail, to learn to change fast and to evolve and fail again. So we continue with that cycle of moving the company as fast as we can, uh, failing a lot, trying a lot of different things, mm-hmm. uh, learning with that and promoting this culture of ownership and accountability. I couldn't agree with you more, Alex. And I, you know, I, I do think it's important to think of the word fail as first attempt in learning. It is, it is how we get to that next level. Uh, not everything is going to work purpose, perfectly the first 
uh, time or 9,000 times, but we just have to put ourselves out there. And, and I also think that your tip of building a culture of ownership and accountability, it's, um, it's so important. We like to end our podcast by sharing with our audience a fun fact or story, favorite movie, whatever you want to share. And, and uh, <laughs> mine is, this is a bizarre, but uh, true, just happened a couple of days ago. But I have a good friend who owns an art gallery. She represents a number of artists. And she said, please, will you do a favor uh, one of one of our artists needs a foot model for a painting. And if you could please, you know, position yourself this way and, you know, with the sun at three o'clock and the shadow is so-and-so. And, -so. and um, so now I can add a foot model to my resume. Um, anything you're, you're willing to share? I think on, on my side, uh, I was going to share just a recommendation of a book that I recently read. That oh, was great. Uh, important for me. The book is called Collective Genius. And it's from, from a professor of, of Harvard Business School, Linda Hill. And basically, I think the collective genius is what, what the, the, the summary of the book. I don't want to give too much uh, spoil, but it's basically related to uh, as more we have a team of people that are different between them, as more innovation this team is going to be able to bring and, and to deliver. And usually uh, it's very common for us to get together with people that are similar to us in mm -hmm. general, in culture, mm -hmm. in personality, in, in, in genre, etc. And the book explains exactly the opposite, that if you are able to build a, a, a very diverse team with different people of different personalities, cultures, etc., Assuming that everyone is aligned on the, the values, the, at least the professional values of where the company is going to, you can get the most in the innovation side. So it, it's, it's great. It was a great reflection for me to improve and be more open to building a team of people that are usually different, think different, and not, not that they are wrong. They're just doing things differently. It's super hard for us to, to be able to create a good communication channel between us as more, as more the team is diverse. But reading the book, it's clearly an effort that needs to be done because it demonstrates that the results, they are extraordinary when you, when you achieve that. Alex, thank you so much for that. Um, I am adding Collective Genius by Linda Hill to my list of books that I look forward to reading this summer. Thank you. Uh, Juliana? Well, uh, for me, it's a recommendation of a activity. There is so much going on in the world and something that it's really helping me keep sanity is that I recently started to attend hot yoga classes, which is like normal yoga, but in a heated room. And I can say it's life-changing. I feel so much better and so relaxed after so um, if you have the chance, you should definitely try it. Well, a very good friend of mine in Southern California was saying that she thought that it, it sort of saved her mental health-wise, physical health-wise. And there was a small group of her hot yoga class that decided um, <laughs> they had to, I guess, put 
I shouldn't probably share it. Well, anyways, I'm not naming her or the or the hot yoga studio, but they actually put um, black paper over the windows so that no one would know that they were meeting and continuing with the hot yoga. But that's how strongly they they felt about it. So I I think I I need to also add that to my uh, list of new things to try. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, listeners, uh, Vtex continues its journey after going public last summer and is looking at its phase of continuing to bring digital commerce to brands worldwide. Thanks everyone for joining us. And thank you, Alex and Juliana. This was such a pleasure. Thank you, Natalie and the team. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.